0: This is LA Court Report, covering Southern California's boys' high school basketball scene, going to games, running events, hosting Zoom conversations. And now, the podcast. This is the LA Court Report podcast. I'm Steve Wax, and our guest today is Valley Torah High School head coach, Lior Schwartzberg. Coach Schwartzberg, thanks for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. Coach, you're in a very interesting situation. Valley Torah is not the average high school. Can you talk about the uniqueness of Valley Torah?
1: Well, I mean, we're unique on many fronts. For one, we don't have a gym, right? So some people know, some people don't. We're nomads in the sense of every year could be a completely different gym. That's a home court, and some years we played in four, five, six different "quote unquote" home gyms. Um, sometimes we have to practice outside if need be. And on top of everything, they go to school Monday through Thursday from 7:30 in the morning until 5 or 6:30 some days, depending on whether or not they have um, an extra class at the end of the day called Mishmar. Friday is a shorter day, but uh, we can't do anything because of Shabbat. Then all of Saturday, nothing, and. Um, and when Shabbat ends, we, we go again. So we don't practice the traditional, you know, some teams will go five, six days a week. We definitely don't do that. On top of that, they also have Sunday school to make up for that half day on Friday. They go, I think it's eight to, to 1130 or 1115. So we don't have practice Fridays, no practice Saturdays or rarely practice Saturdays. If it is, it's super late. And then we also have to take one day off a week just because of the rigorous curriculum that they have to burn them with a practice every night. On top of that, the fact that our practices are 8.30 p.m. sometimes. Um, And I think this year may be even tougher. If we want to go Saturday night, we're looking at a 9.30 or 10 p.m. practice. Um, I know we've talked to Yula about even playing an 11.30 p.m. game uh, because JV goes first. So, but, you know, so it's a little different. We have less practices. We don't necessarily go year round like some high schools. We don't have a PE period that's basketball. So when the season ends, there's a break and whatever we can fit at night, some days we do that. And my favorite is the fact that our winter break is at the end of January. And, you know, kids go on vacations with, with families. So a lot of them take a week or two off a week or two before CIF playoff starts. So we, we've always traditionally come back and lost games. And it's almost 90% of the time when kids go out of town, they come back, it takes them a game or two to get going. It's almost like you know it's going to happen, so you just have to anticipate that. Um, you know, So it's, they got a full slate, and we have to be flexible because of that. It's 12-hour days, and then you anticipate them to have a, a two-hour practice and focus and slightly unrealistic some days. And we've been blessed with the fact that, you know, We've had guys that show up and, and do what they're supposed to do, but it's it's unique, and that's assuming that we can find a gym to practice in.
0: So, speaking of, you mentioned you'll use five or six gyms during a season. Can you name those five or six facilities? Typically, where are you practicing?
1: So, right now, we're really last couple of years. It's really been Crespi, Bell Jeff. Um, we use Emic uh, Hebrew Academy. In the last couple of years, Panorama High School we used Heritage Christian High School st genevieve high school we've, we've hosted a couple games there um i'm trying to think if there's anything else along the line of gyms that we've used but i uh, i'm blank. oh viewpoint we've practiced at viewpoint a couple of times all the way in calabasas considering that we're in north hollywood uh, i don't think we've hosted a game there but we have practiced there um and you know it's it was great that you know coach prince allowed us to use that court we you know once a week uh, not once a week once a year that that we've done it so um yeah, we're all over the place, but I think we're pretty solid this year and last year with between Crespi and and Jeff High School.
0: Now, you talked about a lot of the barriers, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the time constraints Valley Tour has. What about the good aspects of the identity of the school and you being a conduit of the school's mission?
1: Well, for one is a lot of these guys grew up together, right? It's not like we're putting a bunch of different peas in in a pot. It's A lot of them know, I mean, they're neighbors. They went to school since pre-K. So although, and they spend every day together. So a lot of times, you know, schools have to do certain team building activities. It's, they're already a a family. You know, uh, we go to Memphis Cooper. Uh, We've gone last couple of years with with a couple of breaks as a Jewish tournament out of Memphis for different yeshivas. And this, not a year ago, I was going to say this last year, but they canceled it they had to come up with a slogan for each team. And on our shirts is our logo and it said family. And that really encompasses who we are. These kids know each other so well that we don't necessarily have to do the, the team building stuff that most teams do. Our team building is practices. You know, going through the events, going to Memphis for a tournament, going to New York every year when we get invited to a tournament. We've done a couple of theme park stuff as well. We, you know, you'll go to someone's house, and you know, have a pizza night, stuff like that. But for the most part, it's not getting to know each other. They've known each other, so that fabric is really unique.
0: I personally believe there's a misperception. Some people feel that things like pizza, things like social events, are what brings a team together. Personally, I think those things are superficial to some degree. You're talking about family. And as you know, with family, you laugh together, you cry together, you have difficult conversations together. Do you have that aspect of family with your program?
1: Yes, from the sense of the fact that they're a community. Um, So the pizza night is not the, like, hey, let's get to know each other. They know each other. It's more, I know one time, for example, we were kind of, what's the best way? Doing impersonations of each other, including me, right? I, I know... Uh, somebody did an impersonation of me it's it's that comfortability of i'm willing to take a shot at you knowing that you're not going to take it personally because i know that there's love there there's family there in the same way that you'll tease a sibling or a cousin it's they're not going to say i never want to see you again they're probably going to laugh and be like that's that's kind of true there's some there's some accuracy there so the pizza night is not so much of getting to know each other or doing icebreakers it's spending time together it's establishing memories It's just those stories that stay with you. It's not necessarily the pizza or the gathering. It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, it's spending time with your family and to a certain degree, because we do spend a lot of time together. We're a, uh, you know, pseudo family.
0: Being a family that's that tight knit. I know that graduation is really bittersweet for your athletes because they've spent, as you said, 7.30 to sometimes 11 at night together daily. Can you talk about maybe the mood in the locker room after the last game of the season and what's that, what that's like?
1: It's also unique for us, right? We go to New York after CIF every year. It's almost, it's a double-edged sword because the last game is not the same as every other last game. It's not our last game. I can tell you every year when the last game will be a date is already set. We know there's an end and that is the end win or loss that. So it's a little different. I think a lot of other high schools go through that senior year where you don't know when it's going to end, especially if you're a competitive team and you think you can win the whole thing and all of a sudden it stops. I've been there, right? I've been there where you really think you have a chance and then it's over everything. It's just done. No more practices, no more bus rides, no more games. It's a little different because we know whether, you know, throughout an arbitrary date, like on March 15th. That's when season is going to end. That's the end of the, you know, the Sierra Tech Tournament in New York. That's the season. So there isn't that emotion. Now, that being said, every year after our last game, we go to a restaurant in New York and we kind of recap the year. That's when those emotions come out. That's when I think a lot of the seniors, it hits them. Not so much in the locker room of the last game, but when they almost kind of recap the year, but also recap their experience. The seniors are sharing it with the freshmen. It's almost progressive. Freshmen, hey, good job. You know, Sophomores, hey, we got better. Juniors are, hey, I'm excited to be a senior. And seniors are saying, this goes by fast. And usually the seniors are the ones that emotionally really unload. And we get juniors too, especially if they've been in the program a couple of years. So it's, it's unique because there's no surprise, you know, when season's going to end, you know, we're going to go to that restaurant and we're going to recap and, you know, everybody shares stories from the year and it's very, very helpful. It's a good closure. Then we get on the plane and season's over. We see our goodbyes at Lex, and, and we move on, but we get that closure, but there's also no surprises. There isn't that emotional aspect
0: of it. When you were hired, how much did they talk about the importance of you being a representative of the community, not just the basketball coach?
1: It's the number one thing. You know, I, it's not winning or losing a Valley tour. It's how you conduct yourself. It's really how you develop those relationships, but how you develop, the young men and how you instill values in them. The the school is very big on values and character. You know, it's, it's a college prep, right? We do want them to uh, go to yeshiva for a year and, and study more religious texts and then go to college and Valley tour has been great. I mean, Harvard, Penn, John Hopkins, UCLA, multiple kids getting into UCLA straight out of high school in a small school. We, we, we really push the college prep part of it as well, but the values are really important. And we can have a great season or a bad season. It's how we conducted ourselves in the process. Did we take care of everything in the classroom? Were we men of character? Did we uphold Jewish values? It, that's much bigger than wins and losses. It's been great and we've had a lot of success. And I think it's you know 130 something wins or so in five years. But the fact that all of them, either go to yeshiva and then college or go directly to college and they come back, they say, hello, they're good kids. They're, they're, they're good young men. There is really almost, I can't even think of one bad apple in the bunch. And I think that's more important than anything else. And when you do run into them or they drop off their little brothers at high school and stop by and say hello, or they'll show up at a game cause they're home for Hanukkah. And that's, I mean, that's what the school's about. That, that family that we just talked about, it's, it's that, it's the values, it's the community value, it's the way you uphold yourself and the character aspect of it. Okay.
0: So without naming names, can you think of a time when you maybe had to help a young player along? Because no matter where you're coaching, when you're dealing with kids who are 15, 16, they're going to make mistakes. That's part of growing. That's part of the process. So how have you been able to help a young man along, along instilling the values in him?
1: I'm trying my best not to name names. So I'll, I'll (laughs) so look, I I have an office on campus, right? And I would say I have an open door policy, but when I used to do that, magically their attendance in class kind of dropped. So I have a locked door policy where you can come in when you're not in class. And I think we, we, I've had plenty of conversations. I have unfortunately two comfortable couches in my office that, the students can come in, they can come in, they can talk, whether it's a family situation um, issues that they're having with, with teachers or with uh, kids at the school or at home and advising them from the position of an outsider to their situation. We've dealt with, um, you know, close family deaths and we've dealt with um, other personal situations in each kid's life. And I think that getting them through that and letting them fall back on known right and wrong. A lot of times and known, you know, and being able to see the full picture. Uh, I, we've, we've dealt with all that in the last five years and, you know, some situations are harder. Um, Also injuries. We've had some major injuries and that psychological aspect of it and getting over those humps. Those have been long discussions as well. It's because I think that there's so much about the community, the, feel a need to always be slightly held to a higher standard and and when you advise kids about that it's you come from a perspective of how can you hold yourself to higher standard? is that really the righteous way to act is that really a value you want to instill would you know would your parents be proud if they knew about x y or z and allows them to step back and really evaluate it from the perspective of the values and the character that has been instilled in them their whole life.
0: That's a great answer. Now, you mentioned there's not a lot of pressure on you to win. There's pressure on you to be an extension of the community, to develop young men. However, Valley Torah has had an incredible history. Uh, 2011, Valley Torah wins a CIF championship and had a transformational player in Aaron Lieberman, who went on to play at Northwestern and Tulane. Did you feel a little bit of pressure to win beyond the pressure you put on yourself with the history that Valley Torah has? First Orthodox Jewish school to win a CIF championship, correct?
1: So when I was considering accepting the job, I actually called Andre Shevayim, who was the coach before me. At Valley Torrey was there one year and I want to know what situation I got myself into. And he said, you know, we lost a lot this last year, just so you know, there are two, you know, okay, guards are decent. Um, And if you develop them, they'll, you know, they'll be useful. It's, you're not going to a situation where you got nothing, but you're going to work. And the idea was that within three years, we were hoping to go back to being competitive. That was, that was the goal that we had obviously those two kids end up averaging 30 points a game each within two years. So they were a little better than, than okay or good. But I, you know, I always put the self pressure as every coach does, right. You want to perform to the best of your ability, whatever that ability is, right. It's not necessarily winning or losing, but you want to perform and get the most, you know, the best you can squeeze out of that orange, but, you know, I came in wanting to instill a culture, wanting to kind of make sure that we do the stepping stones and kind of build on it. I had no idea what I was about to walk into and the amount of talent that was actually in the gym. Um, no, it wasn't 6'10", but we weren't bad. And I remember, actually, we're, we were invited to New York, or no, we weren't invited we passed the opportunity to put our name into a lot of to get picked from. And I remember talking to the head of school and I said, there's actually like pretty good talent in that gym. They were anticipating having a down year. I said that there's, we're probably about eight deep. I didn't, I never in my wildest dream thought that I'd go into a, um, you know, an Orthodox Jewish school and say, we're eight deep, but we were. Scrappy, not necessarily you know six eleven, not necessarily um, you know division one in every position. A little different than what necessarily I was used to before, whether through my high school experience or my coaching experience. But you know, we we definitely had a couple players. So they didn't think we we're going to win, which I maybe helped a little bit because they were surprised by our first game i remember we, we i forgot the team but we went in and it was like 35 to 6 after the first quarter and everybody's like what is going on here nobody expected it and after the game you know i, I don't remember which rabbi it was said so that was the best game I've, I've seen like i've never seen us play like that and i think that kind of got us going to believing like we actually have something special here that we can develop and and we did that year. We went to the quarterfinals, and it was before the new CIF playoffs. So we ran into Capistrano Valley Christian. They had some players, and, and it, was, it was competitive. It was definitely competitive. And had we won, we would have played Rancho uh, Christian because they were in Division 5 still, based on the old format. So that would have been our, our next matchup. And believe it or not, we had a scout ready because we thought we, we were going to get them. We thought that our game plan. For Capo Valley Christian that year was good. And, you know, we, we, we lost on two reasons. There was one guy that hasn't hit a three all year. No, he hit like two threes, and he hit three that game, naturally. And then one of their uh, players who shot 48% from the free throw line went 15 for 15. And, again, I'll take that.
0: Completely understood. So we talked about Aaron Lieberman and his legacy at Valley Torah. And we thought that was a legacy that was going to be completely untouchable. And that's not a slight in any way to Aaron. He was such an amazing player, so bouncy, uh, brought so much energy. And then a few years later, you have a, another incredible transformational player in Ryan Terrell. He actually turned down the chance to play Division I basketball to play at Yeshiva University in New York, a Division Three school. They went to the D3 Sweet 16, and obviously the NCAA tournament was cut off based on COVID. You kind of wonder how far Yeshiva could have gone. So why don't we talk a little about Ryan and what he did for your program?
1: Yeshiva would have won a national championship. Just, just putting that out of the way, we don't have to wonder. They they would have won a national championship that year. They were peaking at like the perfect time, right? You always want to peak going into playoffs and they were, I mean, sensational to watch at that junction of the year, let alone the fact that they're riding a 29 game win streak. And, you know, psychologically, that kind of elevates you to believing in yourself. Um, but Ryan was special, right? I remember talking to his father, and the idea is that we're hoping by his senior year, he'd be good enough to maybe play Division 3 We're just hoping that maybe we can get there and build him there. And, you know, he alongside of max lebowitz two guys that were very good i mean ryan was special right and it's not just his basketball talent right i anybody in the gym can walk in and see that he's special i remember we played saugus one game and you know they're playing valley Tora. I, I don't think they were like scouting us or prepared they, you know they're walking in division five valley Toro. let's have fun and i remember I, I i looked over at the bench near near the first half we're up and they were like, who, who's this guy? Who's this guy? <laughs> he, I think he had at halftime, like 20 points. The basketball part is, is it is what it is. What makes him special is who he is, right? He is the most positive teammate. He is energetic. If I was ever stupid enough to sub him out, he would be on the bench cheering he would be clapping he would be open to new ideas but all his teammates loved him it was never hey that guy you know he's a ball hog which was a hard argument to make when he's averaging 11 assists a game and probably could have had more if we had a couple more shooters but or if we made our layups but um you know he everybody loved him everybody wanted to be around him His positivity and energy was just infectious. When you say that, you know, oh, that guy's every coach's dream. That guy's every coach's dream. That guy is every coach's dream because of who he is, without the basketball in his hand. Um, You know, and we still talk to this day. And he's just—he's a good person. He's—he's a great person. Um, And I'm very proud to see how he's developed.
0: Now, when you have a player who's earned the title volume shooter, because a lot of times it's a negative, but we know that if he put up 40 shots in a game, he'd probably make about 32 to 34 of them pretty easily. Did you spend time having to alter what you do to teach other players how to play off of him because he was going to draw double and triple teams and teach them how to spot up when the ball leaves their hands, et cetera?
1: Well, yes, yes. I mean, you have to, you know, you're going into every game. And when you try to figure out what the other team is going to do is it boils down to what is the, how the other team probably going to guard Ryan. And when we had Max as well, was how are they going to guard Max and Ryan? And actually, I think one of my biggest mistakes is Holy Martyrs game. You were there. Uh, We're playing Holy Martyrs. And I think you, you probably know Ryan and Max just as well as I do, because you were at all our games anyways. Um, but it's just, I, I feel like I was not prepared enough for what I knew was going to happen anyways. And I focused more on the other team than us. And, um, telling the other guys how to play with Ryan is easy. He makes the right decision. If you're open, he's going to get it to you. He's not going to say, coach, I didn't pass it because the guy can't shoot. If you're open, he's going to get it to you. You got to make the shot. There's a lot of coaching there. It's hold your fall through. You know, it's, there isn't much there. Make your lips. There isn't much, is there movement? Yes. You know, if he's on this side, we're sending a screen. How do we, you know, interchange on, on the weak side or, you know, relocating on the strong side if he's using the screen, um, just knowing that help is going to be there. But he was so good that there didn't we didn't need to over plan it it's him being able to make a play more than anything else so getting the other guys you know to play around it wasn't hard because as we said before they all grew up together they played around him for a long time and to a certain degree it was a double-edged sword because what happens when ryan fouls out that was a question we had to ask ourselves playing santa clarita christian right we're up five points You, you were at that game too um, and you know, big, I think that was the loudest gym I've ever been in that game at master's college. And, you know, Ryan fouls out on, on a bogus call, right? Jordan started admitted it afterwards to Ryan that, you know, he faked it, he sold it. And all of a sudden, what do we do now? Right. So they come all out press knowing Ryan is out and, you know, we're playing hot potato on our end because where's Ryan. <laughs> And Ryan's on the bench cheering, knowing that he fouled that rather than sulking about it. He's trying to get his guys ready and, you know, you can do this. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know, we end up losing in the last 20 seconds or so on a turnover until layup. Um, So that's that's the downside of it is when they get so used to playing off Ryan is what happened when Ryan's off. That was the challenge, right? Trying to get them comfortable to step into that role, knowing that they aren't him. So the issue is not a spotting up based on where Ryan is because I can, you know, I can put them anywhere they want to. If they're open, Ryan's going to find them or he's going to find the basket. One of the, that's not complicated, right? A stupid coach like me can figure it out. It's how to get them comfortable when he wasn't there because it was so rare and they have been so dependent on him year in, year out. That what happens when he wasn't there and we had to play a couple games when he was injured and actually funny story trinity classical at crespi he pulls a hamstring earlier in the week we're playing them their coach is kind of thrown back because he had a game plan for max and ryan there's no max uh, there's no ryan so he made an adjustment but it was a close game close game and this is you know we, we win this we we'll probably win the league um it was before santa clarita christian was what they are now a year before and he's pulled a hamstring in Ryan fashion, he has his Jersey underneath his warmups and fourth quarter we're down. And he's like, I, I, I'm, I need to play. We're not losing this game. We're not losing this game. Ryan, I don't want to get, he's like, I don't care. We're not losing this game. Don't worry about the next game or the game after it's this game. And you know, fourth, we're going back and forth. And I said, screw it go in there. He, in, in one quarter, only had six points, four, four, six points, not a lot. He had 11 assists in one quarter. It could be that the other team was just so adjusted to having him not there that when he's there, they're, oh, and let's go back to triangle triangle too. Let's, no, 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 let's double him. They kind of forgot their game plan that they were caught so off guard that he actually came in the game and you see them scrambling. And, you know, we end up winning the game. And Max had 49 points that game. I think 49 or, or 47, something like that. Well, yeah, it's everybody's like oh ryan's in let's go to him kick out three kick out three you know it's pitch ahead because he can't he's on one leg he's hobbling you can see that he's hurt um but he that's that's who he was you know it's and and guys struggled too just when he wasn't there and he saw that game and he said i need to be in there not because i'm going to go out and dominate and score 30 points this quarter and be the hero it's because they just need to see me there to feel comfortable to play and he knew that aspect of it, that he knew that he can take the night off. And it helped to have a good counterpart. But the guys just were so used to him being on the floor that he knew that that game they needed him on the floor.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Now, switching to the topic of games, do you set process goals? Do you go into a game saying, let's get – X amount of deflections or X force, X amount of turnovers, or is that something you do with your team going into games?
1: You know, I, I used to, I used to, well, yes, but I used to do the traditional, okay, hold them under 30%, you know, shoot over 35% and, you know, get, you know, 20 free throw attempts or make more free throws than they attempt, like the cliches, right? But I realize a lot of that you don't control, right? It's up yeah. If you hit all those, you're going to win the game. Right. It, you know, don't turn the ball over. It's yes. Yeah, of course. Right. Now getting the ball in the hole is sometimes out of, you know, your jurisdiction of what you can or can't do to us. It's very simple, right? Make your layups, take at least one charge a quarter and win the war on the boards. That's it. Right. We, we, we've talked in the past, less than 12 turnovers, but look, some games are a upbeat. You can have 18 turnovers and the other team has 30. So, you know, the turnovers are kind of a, a facade in a sense. If it's a slow game in the 30s, well, we only had six turnovers. How do we lose that game? Well, you know, there's only like eight possessions the whole game. So, and actually in Memphis, there's no shot clock when we go to the Memphis Cooper tournament. Um, and there's, I, have you ever heard the story about Memphis? I have not. We went to four overtimes with Milken. Um, This was 2007, November 2007. We went to four overtime with Milken, and um, Amitai fouls out, right? So we win every tip, right? Uh, Ryan just wins every tip, and we just hold the ball. And they sat in the zone. So actually what happened is the first overtime, Ryan hits a shot to go to overtime, right, at the buzzer. First overtime, we score immediately. They score, and Ryan's bringing it up, and he's holding it in the corner looking for a call. And I kind of shrug my shoulder, like, "What do you want?" And he goes, "Nothing." Like I don't. So he's just dribbling, and they're not doubling him. They're sitting in, in, a, in a box and one, or you know, or a zone of sorts. I, mean, I think it was a box and one, if I remember. And just he's dribbling, he's dribbling, and they're doing nothing. So you know, we we go for it at the end, at four minute overtime, and we realize, hey, they're just going to send the zone. So every time Ryan wins a tip and we just hold the ball at the top, right? Not Ryan, somebody else. They don't go out to pressure them. They send in the zone. 10 seconds ago, we do some dribble handoff to Ryan. He comes off, they collapse on him. He kicks it out for a three. We did that till the fourth overtime and eventually hit that shot. Um, but so like the whole idea of, you know, in less than 12 turnovers or make more free throws than than the other team attempts or, you know, keep them to under 25% from threes or whatever it is. I think it's kind of bogus in a sense because it's cliche. You know, anybody can say that I can say, look, hold the other team to less than 20%, shoot more than 60%. Don't turn over the ball, attempt 20 free throws and make at least 15 threes. If you can do that, there's no way we're, well, yeah, of course. Right. So we just, it's very simple to us. Make your layups. And when we say layups, we include free, throws. just make the free stuff, the easy stuff. And win the war on the boards, right? Don't, you know, don't lose that battle and take charges. And that's really kind of like what we want to do every game. We don't have anything more complicated than that. It's, it's that simple. It's, we're not into the cliche stuff.
0: Thanks for that answer. And the very last question I would have is you're obviously very selective about who you bring into your program who you have around the young men in your program. And it's very clear that you pick good assistants that you feel comfortable delegating responsibilities to. Can you talk about the way you spread the duties among your various assistant coaches? It's
1: really whatever they want to do. I'm not going to say, Hey, you take care of the defense and the coach themselves is uncomfortable with it. And I'm not going to say, take care of the offense and you go, I don't know all the calls. Right. And we've, we've been really blessed with really good assistant coaches. We have, you know, great assistant coaches now too, um, with experience and also passion. And I've been really lucky to have, you know, young assistant coaches as well that really kind of want to grind it out and and learn. Um, But it's really what they're comfortable with. I'm okay with giving them their duties. I have no issues. I've had coaches say, I want to call the defense. Okay, have fun. Here's the game plan. Just, you know, have fun. And we'll have conversation. I'm comfortable with, okay, have, have your set of plays that you want and just, call. And, you know, before games, we also kind of have a play sheet. Okay, here's, if they're in this defense, here's two or three play calls. So they're comfortable if they're, you know, if this lineup is in, here's a defense we're in. So even though they have the duties, we've talked about it before, right? We don't go into the game and one assistant coach has defense they want to run, one assistant coach has offense they want to run. It's what they're comfortable with. We'll talk about it before. And we also delegate some roles to the players we like to have players out coach on the team. And, you know, I'll say, I just had a conversation with, with some of the guys from this year, you know, what, what worked for you guys last year? What did you feel comfortable with? What do you think was, you know, the bread and butter stuff? You'd you'd be comfortable and stuff that you believe in and let's do that. Right. I don't want to be like, Hey, I got a great idea. Here's a triangle offense. You know, just get in these spots. And if you pass it here, it's, it's what do you, do you guys want to do the triangle offense? Let's learn it. You guys want to drive and kick? Let's do it. You guys want to have sets and no motion? Let's do it. You guys just want to do motions? Just do it. And with the coaches is you, you, you're comfortable with the offense Run it. That's less for me to think about. Now I can focus on maybe just enjoying the game for once in my life. So, um, you know, what the coaches want to do, they'll do. I know that, you know, um, Coach S, one of my assistant coach, um, great guy, great coach, probably 15 times smarter than me in every facet of life. There's things that he did at Bell Jeff when he was there for a long time that worked for him. I'm all for learning new stuff. And if the guys like it and he knows how to teach it and he knows when to utilize it, you know, I, I don't need to run the show. If, you know, you've heard the cliche, if you're the smartest guy in the room, get out of the room. I I want them to take some ownership. It makes them engage, right? You don't want assistant coaches that are just sitting there and clapping. You want assistant coaches that are, you know, they know the team we're going to face, not show up and be like, who's their best player? Is there any, you know, what offense do they send the zone? It's no, they, they kind of know. And the more they want to take on, the more I'll give, you know, it'll be a dream of mine to just sit down and have one guy take offense, one guy defense. If I was at a school with more assistant coaches, you know, one guy special, whatever it is, take it, have fun with it. We, we work on it in practice. By the time we get to the game, we rarely ever are, are scrambling for answers we know what we want to do. We have three or four plays. We have two or three defenses and let's play ball. So, and I love that. And I think that develops them way more. And the young coaches that I have, if they shouldn't be in the program more than three or four years, go, go fly, take a head coaching position, go to college ranks, do whatever it is you need to do. You, if you want to stay a Valley tourist, stay as long as you want. But if you're a young coach, go fly, have fun, go learn, try it out now while you can.
0: And that would be a great place for us to say thank you so much for your time this evening, your candor, your storytelling. We wish you the absolute best.
1: Thank you so much for for having me. And uh, thank you so much for supporting Valley Tour all those years, especially when you were on Hills Prep. You came to all our games to support us and cheer us on. Um, And, you know, thank you for your friendship. Actually, I was looking through my emails, last story before we leave, And my first communication with you was when you were at LMU and to to work camps. And then you went to Brentwood right after I left Brentwood. Um, And then you went to Campbell Hall when I was uh, trying to help David and Dana with some players in their camps. Um, So your friendship has always been great. And I, I appreciate that. And it's always a pleasure talking to you and seeing you. And I hope that continues, hopefully in person soon.
0: Absolutely. And I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the L.A. Court Report podcast, an L.A. Court Report production.